Book Two, Chapter Two, Sections Four to Seven of Mr. Britling Sees It Through by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Eastman. Four. It was only when they sat together in the barn court, out of the way of Mrs. Britling and the children, that Captain Carmine was able to explain his listless bearing and jaded appearance. He was suffering from a bad nervous shock. He had hardly taken over his command before one of his men had been killed, and killed in a manner that had left a scar upon his mind. The man had been guarding a tunnel, and he had been knocked down by one train when crossing the line behind another. So it was that the bomb of Sarajevo killed its first victim in Essex. Captain Carmine had found the body. He had found the body in a cloudy moonlight. He had almost fallen over it, and his sensations and emotions had been eminently disagreeable. He had had to drag the body. It was very dreadfully mangled, off the permanent way. The damaged, almost severed head had twisted about very horribly in the uncertain light, and afterwards he had found his sleeves saturated with blood. He had not noted this at the time, and when he had discovered it he had been sick. He had thought the whole thing more horrible and hateful than any nightmare, but he had succeeded in behaving with a sufficient practicality to set an example to his men. Since this had happened he had not had an hour of dreamless sleep. "'One doesn't expect to be called upon like that,' said Captain Carmine, suddenly here in England, when one is smoking after supper. Mr. Britling listened to this experience with distressed brows. All his talking and thinking became to him like the open page of a monthly magazine. Across it this bloody smear, this thing of red and black, was dragged. 5. The smear was still bright red in Mr. Britling's thoughts when Teddy came to him. "'I must go,' said Teddy. "'I can't stop here any longer.' "'Go where?' "'Into Cocky. I've been thinking of it ever since the war began. Do you remember what you said when we were bullying off at Hockey on Bank Holiday, the day before war was declared?' Mr. Britling had forgotten completely. He made an effort. What did I say? You said, what the devil are we doing at this hockey? We ought to be drilling or shooting against those confounded Germans. I've never forgotten it. I ought to have done it before. I've been a scoutmaster. In a little while they will want officers. In London, I'm told, there are a lot of officers' training corps putting men through the work as quickly as possible. If I could go... What does Letty think? said Mr. Britling after a pause. This was right, of course, the only right thing, and yet he was surprised. She says if you'd let her try to do my work for a time. She wants you to go. Of course she does, said Teddy. She wouldn't like me to be a shirker, but I can't unless you help. I'm quite ready to do that, said Mr. Britling, but somehow I didn't think it of you. I hadn't somehow thought of you. 
"'What did you think of me?' asked Teddy. "'It's bringing the war home to us. Of course you ought to go, if you want to go.' He reflected. It was odd to find Teddy in this mood, strung up and serious and businesslike. He felt that in the past he had done Teddy injustice. This young man wasn't as trivial as he had thought him. They fell to discussing ways and means. There might have to be a loan for Teddy's outfit, if he did presently secure a commission. And there were one or two other little matters. Mr. Britling dismissed a ridiculous fancy that he was paying to send Teddy away to something that neither that young man nor Letty understood properly. The next day Teddy vanished Londonward on his bicycle. He was going to lodge in London in order to be near his training. He was zealous. Never before had Teddy been zealous. Mrs. Teddy came to the dower house for the correspondence, trying not to look self-conscious and important. Two Mondays later, a very bright-eyed, excited little boy came running to Mr. Britling, who was smoking after lunch in the rose garden. Daddy! squealed the little boy. Teddy! In cocky! The other junior Britling danced in front of the hero, who was walking beside Mrs. Britling and trying not to be too aggressively a soldierly figure. He looked a very man in cocky, and more of a boy than ever. Mrs. Teddy came behind, quietly elated. Mr. Britling had a recurrence of that same disagreeable fancy that these young people didn't know exactly what they were going into. He wished he was in cocky himself. Then he fancied this compunction wouldn't trouble him quite so much. The afternoon with them deepened his conviction that they really didn't in the slightest degree understand. Life had been so good to them hitherto that even the idea of Teddy's going off to the war seemed a sort of fun to them. It was just a thing he was doing, a serious, seriously amusing, and very creditable thing. It involved his dressing up in these unusual clothes and receiving salutes in the street. They discussed every possible aspect of his military outlook, with the zest of children who recount the merits of a new game. They were putting Teddy through his stages at a tremendous pace. In quite a little time he thought he would be given the chance of a commission. "'They want subalterns badly. Already they've taken nearly a third of our people,' he said, and added with the wistfulness of one who glances at inaccessible delights, "'One or two may get out to the front quite soon.' He spoke as a young actor might speak of a star part, and with a touch of the quality of one who longs to travel in strange lands. One must be patient. Things come at last. If I'm killed, she gets eighty pounds a year, Teddy explained, among many other particulars. He smiled, the smile of a confident immortal at this amusing idea. He's my little annuity, said Letty, also smiling, dead or alive. We'll miss Teddy in all sorts of ways, said Mr. Britling. It's only for the duration of the war, said Teddy, and Letty's very intelligent. 
I've done my best to chasten the evil in her. If you think you're going to get back your job after the war, said Laddie, you're very much mistaken. I'm going to raise the standard. You, said Teddy, regarding her coldly, and proceeding ostentatiously to talk of other things. 6. Hugh's going to be in cocky, too, the elder junior told Teddy. He's too young to go out in Kitchener's army, but he's joined the Territorials. He went off on Thursday. I wish Gilbert and me was older. Mr. Britling had known his son's purpose since the evening of Teddy's announcement. Hugh had come to his father's study, as he was sitting, musing at his writing-desk, over the important question whether he should continue his examination of war uninterruptedly, or whether he should not put that on one side for a time, and set himself to state as clearly as possible the not-too-generally-recognized misfit between the will and strength of Britain on the one hand, and her administrative and military organization on the other. He felt that an enormous amount of human enthusiasm and energy was being refused and wasted, that if things went on as they were going, there would continue to be a quite disastrous shortage of gear, and that some broadening change was needed immediately if the swift exemplary victory over Germany that his soul demanded was to be ensured. Suppose he were to write some noisy articles at once, an article, for instance, to be called The War of the Mechanics, or The War of Gear, and another on Without civil strength there is no victory. If he wrote such things, would they be noted, or would they just vanish indistinguishably into the general mental tumult? Would they be audible and helpful shouts, or just waste of shouting? That, at least, was what he supposed himself to be thinking. It was, at any rate, the main current of his thinking. But all the same, just outside the circle of his attention, a number of other things were dimly apprehended, bobbing up and down in the flood, and ready at the slightest chance to swirl into the centre of his thoughts. There was, for instance, Captain Carmine in the moonlight, lugging up a railway embankment, something horrible, something loose and wet and warm that had very recently been a man. There was Teddy, serious and patriotic, filling a feudal penman with incredulous respect. There was the thin-faced man at the club, and a curious satisfaction he had betrayed in the public disarrangement. And there was Hugh. Particularly there was Hugh, silent but watchful. The boy never babbled. He had his mother's gift of deep, dark silences, out of which she was wont to flash a black princess waving a sword. He wandered for a little while among memories. But Hugh didn't come out like that, though it always seemed possible he might. Perhaps he didn't come out because he was a son. Revelation to his father wasn't his business. What was he thinking of it all? What was he going to do? Mr. Britling was acutely anxious that his son should volunteer. He was almost certain that he would volunteer, but there was just a little shadow of doubt whether some extraordinary subtlety of mind mightn't have carried the boy into a pacifist attitude. No, that was impossible. 
in the face of Belgium, but as greatly, and far more deeply in the warm flesh of his being, did Mr. Britling desire that no harm, no evil should happen to Hugh. The door opened, and Hugh came in. Mr. Britling glanced over his shoulder with an affectation of indifference. Hello, he said. What do you want? Hugh walked awkwardly to the hearthrug. Oh, he said in an offhand tone, I suppose I've got to go soldiering for a bit. I just thought I'd rather like to go off with a man I know tomorrow. Mr. Britling's manner remained casual. It's the only thing to do now, I'm afraid, he said. He turned in his chair and regarded his son. What do you mean to do, O.T.C.? I don't think I should make much of an officer. I hate giving orders to other people. We thought we'd just go together into the Essex Regiment as privates. There was a little pause. Both father and son had rehearsed this scene in their minds several times, and now they found that they had no use for a number of sentences that had been most effective in these rehearsals. Mr. Britling scratched his cheek with the end of his pen. "'I'm glad you want to go, Hugh,' he said. "'I don't want to go,' said Hugh, with his hands deep in his pockets. "'I want to go and work with Cardinal. But this job has to be done by everyone. Haven't you been saying as much all day? It's like turning out to chase a burglar or suppress a mad dog. It's like necessary sanitation.' You aren't attracted by soldiering? Not a bit. I won't pretend it, Daddy. I think the whole business is a bore. Germany seems to me now just like some heavy, horrible, dirty mass that has fallen across Belgium and France. We've got to shove the stuff back again, that's all. He volunteered some further remarks to his father's silence. You know I can't get up a bit of tootle about this business, he said. I think killing people or getting killed is a thoroughly nasty habit. I expect my share will be just drilling and fatigue duties and route marches and loafing here in England. You can't possibly go out for two years, said Mr. Britling, as if he regretted it. A slight hesitation appeared in Hugh's eyes. I suppose not, he said. Things ought to be over by then, anyhow. Mr. Ritling added, betraying his real feelings. "'So it's really just helping at the furthest end of the shove,' Hugh endorsed, but still with that touch of reservation in his manner. The pause had the effect of closing the theoretical side of the question. "'Where do you propose to enlist?' said Mr. Ritling, coming down to practical details. Seven. The Battle of the Marne passed into the Battle of the Aisne, and then the long lines of the struggle streamed northwestward until the British were back in Belgium, failing to clutch Menin, and then defending Ypres. The elation of September followed the bedazzlement and dismay of August into the chapter of forgotten moods. And Mr. Britling's sense of the magnitude, the weight and duration of this war beyond all wars, increased steadily. 
the feel of it was less and less a feeling of crisis, and more and more a feeling of new conditions. It wasn't as it had seemed at first, the end of one human phase and the beginning of another. It was in itself a phase. It was a new way of living. And still he could find no real point of contact for himself with it all, except the point of his pen. Only at his writing-desk, and more particularly at night, were the great presences of the conflict his. Yet he was always desiring some more personal and physical participation. Hugh came along one day in October in an ill-fitting uniform, looking already coarser in fibre, and with a nose scorched red by the autumnal sun. He said the life was rough, but it made him feel extraordinarily well. Perhaps man was made to toil until he dropped asleep from exhaustion, to fast for ten or twelve hours, and then eat like a wolf. He was acquiring a taste for woodbine cigarettes, and a heady variety of mineral waters called monsters. He feared promotion. He felt he could never take the high line with other human beings demanded of a corporal. He was still trying to read a little chemistry and crystallography, but it didn't go with the life. In the scanty leisure of a recruit in training, it was more agreeable to lie about and write doggerel verses and draw caricatures of the men in one's platoon. Invited to choose what he liked by his family, he demanded a large tuck-box such as he used to have at school, only much larger, and a big tin of insect powder. It must be able to kill ticks. When he had gone, the craving for a personal share in the nation's physical exertions became overpowering in Mr. Britling. He wanted, he felt, to get his skin into it. He had decided that the volunteer movement was a hopeless one. The War Office, after a stout resistance to any volunteer movement at all, decided to recognize it in such a manner as to make it ridiculous. The volunteers were to have no officers and no uniforms that could be remotely mistaken for those of the regulars, so that in the event of an invasion the Germans would be able to tell what they had to deal with miles away. Wilkins found his conception of a whole nation, all enrolled, all listed and badged according to capacity, his dream of everyone falling into place in one great voluntary national effort, treated as the childish dreaming of that most ignorant of all human types, a novelist. Punch was delicately funny about him. He was represented as wearing a preposterous cocked hat of his own design, designing cocked hats for everyone. Wilkins was told to shut up in a multitude of anonymous letters, and publicly and privately to leave things to Kitchener. To bellow in loud clear tones, leave things to Kitchener, and to depart for the theatre or the river or an automobile tour, was felt very generally at that time to be the proper conduct for a patriot. There was a very general persuasion that to become a volunteer, when one ought to be just modestly doing nothing at all, was in some obscure way a form of disloyalty. So Mr. Britling was out of conceit with volunteering. 
and instead he went and was duly sworn and entrusted with the badge of a special constable. The duties of a special constable were chiefly not to understand what was going on in the military sphere, and to do what he was told in the way of watching and warding conceivably vulnerable points. He had also to be available in the event of civil disorder. Mr. Britling was provided with a truncheon, and sent out to guard various culverts, bridges, and fords in the hilly country to the northwestward of Matchingsezy. It was never very clear to him what he would do if he found a motor-car full of armed enemies engaged in undermining a culvert or treacherously deepening some strategic ford. He supposed he would either engage them in conversation, or hit them with his truncheon, or perhaps do both things simultaneously. But as he really did not believe for a moment that any human being was likely to tamper with the telegraphs, telephones, ways and appliances committed to his care, his uncertainty did not trouble him very much. He prowled the lonely lanes and paths in the darkness, and became better acquainted with a multitude of intriguing little cries and noises that came from the hedges and coverts at night. One night he rescued a young leveret from a stoat, who seemed more than half inclined to give him battle for its prey, until he cowed and defeated it with the glare of his electric torch. As he prowled the countryside under the great hemisphere of Essex sky, or leant against fences, or sat drowsily upon gates, or sheltered from wind and rain under ricks or sheds, he had much time for meditation, and his thoughts went down and down below his first surface impressions of the war. He thought no longer of the rights and wrongs of this particular conflict, but of the underlying forces in mankind that made war possible. He planned no more ingenious treaties and conventions between the nations, and instead he faced the deeper riddles of essential evil and of conceivable changes in the heart of man and the rain assailed him, and thorns tore him, and the soaked soft meadows bogged and betrayed his wandering feet, and the little underworld of the hedges and ditches hissed and squealed in the darkness, and pursued and fled, and devoured or were slain. And one night in April he was perplexed by a commotion among the pheasants, and a barking of distant dogs, and then to his great astonishment he heard noises like a distant firework display, and saw something like a phantom yellowish fountain pen in the sky, far away to the east, lit intermittently by a quivering searchlight, and going very swiftly. And after he had rubbed his eyes and looked again, he realized that he was looking at a zeppelin, a zeppelin flying Londonward over Essex. And all that night was wonder. End of Book 2, Chapter 2, Sections 4 to 7.